let's everybody start finding their seats. You don't want to miss my good illustration of, I don't know how it connects to the lesson, but it's a really fun little story. We learned in Charleston, we were down there. Of course, in Charleston, uh, I mean, live oak trees everywhere. Uh, when I was in Williamsburg, I saw a Compton oak, which I thought was close to a live oak, but I guess they're not exactly the same. And when I came back and I said, John, I want a Compton yoke in my yard. And he comes back, I can't get one of those. So I've got two, uh, uh, what, what oaks? Willow. willow, I got two willow oaks in my yard that are growing, uh, which is great. Um, but live oaks are all over the place. And they got the Spanish moss hanging from them, you know, just beautiful. So we went, Robin and I, the last day we were there, went to Boone Plantation. And uh, it has this, oh, it's got to be 150 yards, maybe longer. Two rows of uh, live oaks stretching with their leaves, just, you know, branches come to each other. And it's just beautiful canopy. Um, Anyway, beautiful. So we were, we were driving down, and there's 30, 30 oaks on each side, something like that. You're going, and there's one oak that's gone. And I said, oh, I wonder if that one. And I said, oh, they probably meant, intended to do that because there was a little gate there. And anyway, so they were talking to us about it, and they said those were planted back in the 1700s, so they're over 200 years old. Uh, there are actually some oaks on the property that were 600 years old. So, and they get huge, just amazing. But, so they were talking to us about the oak trees, and I thought this was a great illustration of, like, the church and the way that members of the church should be. So, like, let's say this tree starts getting a little sick, disease or something like that, it's not healthy. Uh, the roots are so intertwined with one another that it will actually draw nutrients from the other healthy trees next to it to try to help make it strong again. Thought, man, what a beautiful picture of the, of the way the church ought to be, right? That we ought to, when, instead of, okay, this one's sick, let's attack and, and cut them out and get rid of them. It's like, no, we'll give you some of our nutrients and help to grow. Anyway, uh, and those oak trees, uh, I think they said they can sustain over 140 mile an hour winds without, and I mean, they're, they're the branch goes from here to that wall over there. You would think that branch would just break off, right? You know, but... They're just amazing. So um, anyway, you might get an illustration of that somewhere in a sermon someday, but uh, I don't know how it connects to this lesson, but it's just, I thought you guys might like to, to hear that. Uh, inter ah. Now, I don't know if this is one of those, like, stories they were just lying to us to keep us from playing with the Spanish moss, but they said that there's, like, little organisms in them, and it's not really healthy for you to play with them, so I did touch a little bit. So, <laughs> so. anyway, so we're in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians, um, and thank you that we get to study it today. Uh, I love this book. Um, I'm often confounded by this book, but I also uh, love the truth of your word contained in it and how it helps me to think uh, more so uh, about 
theology and how that practically works itself out in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in, we're in the middle of 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, and so I think talking about principles of marriage and different things, these were questions that they wrote about. And if you remember, the, the primary question was whether or not a person who was already married to a non-Christian, because they are so much the temple of the Holy Spirit, they don't want to be joined, and I think sexual union is a part of it, but joined with someone who is not holy. And so they, was, they were actually, somewhat, we, it's called over-realized eschatology, the idea that maybe because I'm so joined to Christ, I'm married to Christ, I'm a holy person, maybe I should not be married to an unbeliever, therefore I have a right to just leave. And Paul basically says, no, that's not the case, you should stay where you are. And he talks about that you actually, in some sense, make your spouse holy. And he talks about that not being salvation, but it, it, it's, a, um, uh, it's all for the purpose of being near to God, like going into the temple. You wouldn't have a, a, a priest, uh, someone who's not a priest, go into the temple. So there's this idea of your holiness, you're in God's presence. So all that was last week. So if you missed that, you know, I, I can't help you unless you go back and listen to that, that lesson. But um, there are, in order to try to understand Paul's thinking, the Jews always separated the now, this world, with the next world, the next kingdom. And so with the resurrection of Christ, the next world has occurred in this world. So here's Christ. He resurrects from the dead. He's really a part of, of the resurrection. And Christians, because they are united to Christ, and this kind of connected with our sermon last week, because we're united with Christ, we are united in his death and in his resurrection. So, so in a sense, we're already a part of the, new, the next world. We're already new creations in Christ. So this is, the, this is all, we kind of listen to this and think of it as, as like neat theology maybe, but okay, what does it mean? I'm still living in this life. But to those who were living like right close to the resurrection, they were like, this is everything. Like this is, and they began to think, well, how do we even live in the now? You know, the cult people would just kind of say, we're just going to go sit on top of that mountain and wait for the, the aliens to come down and take us away or whatever. That's the kind of the mindset of like, we're so much a part of the resurrection. Do we just forget about life now? And we just live in the, in, so it's, Part of what I like to do in teaching 1 Corinthians is before you get bogged down in the details of the, the different things that Paul says are good or not good and different things, you have to understand that this is really the thing that's driving everything with Paul. He's trying to figure out how do we live in the now 
even though we really belong to the next world. And that's, that's just hard for all of us to figure out, okay? Also, um, this whole context, I just want to read you one short verse from Exodus. Had it here, see if I can find it again. Yes, this is just from Exodus 8. It could have been other places. Um, but remember, the Israelites are in slavery to the Egyptians. Now, in that time, God wants to rescue his people. And I'll read this. He says, "Let tell Pharaoh... Let my people go. Why? That they may worship me. That they may serve me. So like being, being in slavery to the Egyptians was preventing the Israelites from worshiping God in the way that God wanted them to. They had to be freed in order to worship them. Is that the way the New Testament speaks? It doesn't. So there's a major change between how the necessity of being free, like Paul will say things like, you know, slaves, obey your masters as in the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves well. I can envision in the Old Testament him saying, get rid of your slaves. They need only be slaves of me. Right? Does that make sense? Not get rid of them, but free them so that they can just be slaves of me. Because there's a difference between how we exist, see, because the, Israelites are primarily living in the now, but we're living in the now next, in next, both of those together, and it does change the way we think about life, even the way we think about marriage, and that's what's going to happen here in 1 Corinthians 7. So we've, we've gone, he's gone through different things uh, to the unmarried and the widows, to the married, to the rest. Uh, now we're in verse 17, and I'll just read that one. Uh, and this is not, this is more just a, a, uh, a more broad understanding. Then in verse 25, we'll get back to um, more of the marriage issue. But let's just read verse 17. Um, Peter, can you, where's Danny? Yeah, give that to Peter. Let him read that. Uh, verse 17 for me. Okay, so, so he basically is, is given a broad principle that's going to apply to marriages, but it really applies to everything in life. And what's that principle in verse 17? Very important. This is very practical. Young people back there, older people, uh, every station of life. What's the principle? What? Lead the life the Lord's assigned you. What? Be content where God's planted you. You don't have to go somewhere else. Just think back in Exodus. Pharaoh, you've got to let my people go so that they might serve me. Paul says, wherever God's called you, wherever you all are, just be content. Which is a totally different way of looking at life. Okay? Now, we're Americans. 
we pride ourselves on the freedom to go out and do, you know, go take this. You got this dream, go explore that dream. Do whatever so that you can achieve what's your purpose in life. Now, I think, I think if the now is all you have, then I like the American dream. But he's not just, Paul's not just thinking of now, he's thinking of the next. Now, Paul's going to be, it's going to be so cool because we are really wedged between the two. And so Paul will like flop back and forth. He'll be saying things like, oh yeah, it's good. You know, get married if, you know, you, you really have a desire to get married, get married if you can. You know, if you're a slave and get your freedom, go ahead and do that, you know. But then he'll like jump over to the other side and he'll say, that's not, that's not necessary in order to serve and please God. That's, that's really the issue. So he's, he's going back and forth here. So, uh, yes. Okay, um, like instead of only, you have your, your, hold on, right, it is, it's I may, yep, if not, uh, or if only, yep. Well, in verse 16, I think it's talking about that there's a possibility that your influence could save someone. But even if it doesn't, you know, so it's like there's a there's a, a maybe motivation. But that's not really the. Like, because I know that I will save my spouse, stick with them. You don't know that. And so in again, the idea is, do, is it necessary for me to control my circumstances in such a way that I can dictate them such that I can find the maximum happiness that I desire in this life? And Paul has already told us he is not opposed to happiness in this life. We've already seen that, right? We've, we've seen how he's dealt with that. But he's, he, he, it's a tightrope he's walking. He doesn't want to go so far as to say, you have got to somehow orchestrate your circumstances such that you will have happiness. Because that would be like, this world is all there is. But he doesn't want to go all the way here like, this world doesn't matter, I'll forget your marriage, go sit up on a hill and just wait. No, we have to live in the now. And this is why I, we're going to get in this passage, like, there's things I don't quite understand and get and understand all the nuances of it and even know how to direct people. There's some grayness there. But I think understanding this big picture of what Paul's trying to do helps them go, you know, just helps you in life. You know, think about your desires, things you want um, in life, and, and uh, those aren't bad things. But if you push them to the extreme when you think, I've got to have this or I can't love and serve God, 
you've pushed it too far, right? And so it, it's, uh, and we all struggle with this. This is why Calvin calls our hearts idol factories, because we, we do this all the time. Okay. Um, I actually need to move us along here. 18 through 24, um, who would like to read? Raise your hand and Daniel will give you the mic. There you go, Gina wants to read. You're reading the right thing. <laughs> You're like, what does this have to do with what we were talking about? You did it. Good job. Okay. Um, this almost sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes. Those of you who are in Ecclesiastes with us on Sunday nights, the whole matter, what the only thing that matters in Ecclesiastes, if you know Ecclesiastes, it's all about, it's all about, yeah, um, well, let me, I'll, I'll try to, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of the uh, sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree. There you go. There's our illustration with the tree. He'll be like a tree planted by living wa waters that just continues to be fruitful, prosperous. Everything he touches his hand do prosperous. Everything's great. Well, Ecclesiastes then goes on and says, yeah, I wish, I wish that were the case. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. Uh, young people die. You know, people that try to follow the Lord, you know, have great suffering. You have diseases. You, I mean, it just doesn't always work out that way, right? So you, you have this, um, this intentions that I talk about a lot, you know. So Psalm 1, kept in tension with Ecclesiastes, is, is uh, uh, just helpful to us. Because you can think, health and wealth gospel, that if I follow God, everything will be great. I get the spouse that I want, I get the kids that I want, I get the job that I want, I get, you know, health that I want, all this kind of stuff. And Ecclesiastes just said it doesn't, doesn't work that way. And Paul would say, yeah, all that hope has a little partial, it has a partial application right now. As you're following God, he does take care of you and bless you in this life and you know, many good things. And all of us can attest to the many ways that God has cared for us, given us many good things in this life. But ultimately, ultimately, it's really for the next world. That's where the true blessing is. 
the final and full blessing. It can't be given in this life. Why can it not be given in this life? What, what prevents you from having all the blessing that you could possibly imagine here? Sin, fallen world. So, I, 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 what's that, Howard? Oh, these are, you guys, great answers. Yeah, I'm not ready for it. If I had all that blessing, it would probably corrupt me. I'd get all, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. So God is, is trying to give you blessing to know that he's going to give you the fullness of blessing. But he's also trying to wean you of just being addicted to this world because he wants to give you the next world, all those kind of things. So my thinking of why you don't have all that is God doesn't want me to yet. He's the reason I don't. Because he placed a curse on this world. And that curse is not completely lifted until the resurrection. So you're still living in a fallen body that is falling apart. It's not everything that it should be. And you're just not able. And this is what's hard because, you know, as I get older, as my body, I get, God gave me a very good body. It's been very strong. I've done, I beat it pretty bad. But it is getting weaker. And that's a frustrating thing for me. And it's not an easy thing to, to experience that, but that's this life because God is trying to get you to live or get me to live for the next life. Okay, so Paul then says, um, or actually Ecclesiastes says, the whole matter, the whole matter is right now just obey God. That's really the, the heart of the matter. That's what Ecclesiastes says. It's not like obedience is going to get you, earn you heaven. That's not the point. But this life is really about me learning to submit my heart to God. And so some days, one of the most important things, I might be struggling deep in my heart with some desire or sin, or you know, and it, nobody else sees it, it's just inside of me. And I'm just wrestling with it, wrestling with it, and then finally I'm just like, Lord, okay, whatever. You, you, I, it's just, I'm yielding myself to you. And that's probably the most important thing that happened in my day. And nobody else might even see it. <laughs> but that's what really matters to God. That he's learning, you're, we're learning to just yield ourselves to God. Because this is the most important thing in life. Because when you're in the next world, that's what will be the, the standard. <laughs> Walking in the way of sinners won't happen. The way of sinners will be gone. The way of the righteous, delighting in God, delighting in his law. Psalm 1 meets its full fullness at that time. So keeping God's commands are everything, verses 18 and 19. Um, and I would say even more than the, like, obviously the moral commands you keep. Um, but understand that some of the Old Testament commands were ceremonial in nature. And what I mean by ceremonial is they're pointing you to Jesus. Okay? So some of those commands, i.e. cutting the foreskin of the flesh, have been fulfilled in Christ. So you don't have to keep doing that. And so in the book of Colossians, some people are saying that you needed to get circumcised in order to have a greater experience of God kind of stuff. And, and Paul's just like, that's irrelevant. It wasn't irrelevant in the Old Testament because it was pointing you to Jesus. But now that you have Jesus, it's irrelevant now. Okay? Um, and it does help us to see that 
circumcision no longer functions as a covenant sign. What is the new covenant sign? Baptism. So whether or not circumcision and baptism are exactly equated, I mean, that's a big discussion on the sacraments and stuff. But the reality is the new covenant sign is baptism. Okay? You don't hear Paul talking about baptism in the way that he's talking about circumcision here. He doesn't say, ah, whether you're baptized into Christ or not, who cares? But he does talk about circumcision that way because it's no longer the covenant sign of God's people. Okay? Uh, then in verse 20 he kind of switches because you can like how, how do you go from ceremonial laws to um, talking about being enslaved in the same sentence like how do you jump from one to the next well it's, it's this, this whole issue is what's driving him he's just taking this already not yet and he's applying it to these various situations okay so he basically says to them, if you're, in, if you're a slave when you were called, don't be concerned about it. Now, will there be, will there be human enslavement of humans in this life over here? No. There will be slavery. We will all be slaves to Christ. <laughs> but there won't be, you know, any, you know, people enslaving each other just down in Charleston, a lot of the evils of that and terrors of that. Um, but, there, but he basically says to a slave, don't be concerned about it. Now, to some of us today, not us necessarily, but in our world today, that's like anathema. That's why we need to chuck the, old, the New Testament, because it's not good enough for us. Where they're missing out on what we're really talking about, because they're saying, the reason why slavery is not so much of an issue is because we're living here. Because in the Old Testament, God said, you better let my people go so that they can serve me. But in the New Testament, that's not as big of an issue. Because this world is not the primary place where you find your ultimate blessing. There's no question that being a slave is not going to give you all the freedom and joy that you might want in your life. Right? So he's basically saying, but you don't have to be concerned about that. And then he does this beautiful thing. What does he call a slave once they become a Christian? No, that, that's switched. He calls him a freedman. So even though in the world you're still a slave, in God's eyes, you are a freedman. Because you've just like the Egyptians had to let go of the Israelites in the past and they were free. So now, if you're in Christ, you are free. Now, that doesn't make sense to people because they're still under the burden of slavery. Now, does Paul take this so far and say, hey, be a slave and like it? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, if you can gain your freedom, do it. Right? And so that would be a good thing. And it might even be helpful for others to try to help them gain their freedom. Paul does that with Philemon. Okay, he actually encourages the uh, Onesimus to free Philemon, or maybe the other way around. Encourages Philemon to free Onesimus. Um, so, um, okay, but he then says, let's say you are a freedman. 
Maybe you're even an owner of slaves. What does he call you? Now you're a slave of Christ. See how he's able to, to do both of those. You were bought. One of the things we went to in Charleston was a, the, uh, one of the most uh, famous indoor slave markets. In, uh, it's very sobering. But the idea that you've been bought on the market, God bought you. How did he, what did he buy you with? Silver? The blood of Christ. That's right. So he says, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, re- let him remain. And then here's the key. Let him remain what? To say there at the end of verse 24. Yeah, but it's, it's not just the situation. Let him remain in that situation. But you are in that situation with God. That's the key. Now, I believe me, I'm happy I'm an American, happy I'm free, happy I you know, live where I live and the things that I do. But like it or not, there have been God's people throughout the ages who have been in terrible situations. Wrongly cast into prison, abused, tortured, beaten, all these kind of things. And if, if this world is all there is, then they should be pitied among all people because to follow Christ and get treated like that is terrible. But this world is not all there is. And that's what Paul's being driven by, okay? Yes. Right. 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 Now, and, and I will say, some people then take, take the, uh, the pain of, the, of whatever circumstance you're in. Slavery, bad marriage, singleness, whatever it is. They take that pain and they say, oh, well, you have everything in Christ. You're with Christ. So you should just be like walking on the water and everything should be hunky-dory. No, the reality is this pain is real. I think we do people an injustice when we tell them, oh, well, Christ is with you in that terrible marriage. Don't worry about that. We should enter into the pain and the struggle that they're experiencing, and we should feel that with them because I'm telling you, Christ is entering into that pain. This is why I think earlier in the book of Corinthians, it, it's like the, the sufferings of Christ are being completed as you suffer. So you don't want to just, oh, I live in the next world and everything's happy. No, you're dealing with hard situations. And Christ is with you in that situation because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's living within you, and it's okay. Maybe I should go on more of these getaways, but here's another illustration. So, <laughs> back in the, back in the, uh, I guess the 1700s or 1800s, I don't know exactly when this was, they, um, they believed that yellow fever was transmitted person to person, like it was contagious. We know now it's a mosquito, right? We didn't know that back then. So, uh, this doctor is treating all these patients. And uh, 
And then he comes home, and his three sons all die of yellow fever. And he's riddled with guilt that he has given his sons yellow fever. And several years later, he commits suicide. It's really strange. I wonder how the, I'm just curious how the church read this. Because in that day, if you committed suicide, you were not going to be allowed to be buried in a church graveyard. But he was buried in that graveyard. So uh, this is amazing to me. Because here's a guy who, um, because of the technology of the day, wrongly thinks that he is the one guilty for killing his children. And he's guilt-ridden, grief-stricken, you know, and he's devastated. And he actually takes his own life. And um, I don't, I'm not making any judgments on any of that. I'm just saying that's terrible. In our day and age, like we'd say, he's feeling guilt over something he shouldn't even have felt guilt over. He's the one doing all this good to help people. Anyway, maybe that, yeah. Well, and then you top it all off, like his wife is the only one that survives. She's lost her kids. She's lost her husband. And they don't even know what happened with her. They think that she probably just toughed it out and got married to someone else and started a new family. That's tough. We don't just go, oh, okay, yeah, joy in the Lord, right? I mean, there's, these are struggles. And, it, and I think it's helpful for us as a church to understand that that pain is real, even though you have hope that is, cannot be spoiled, cannot be touched, cannot be tainted in this life. Because it's, it's, where is your hope kept? It's kept in the throne room of God, seated with Christ. That's where it's kept. Yes, Christian. Uh, can you give him the mic so he can... I think I understand the question. I'll try to answer it, and if it doesn't get it, you can follow up. I would answer it two ways. Uh, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's particularly talking about suffering. So even though that we can't understand pain, um, the, the Duns were taken care of. Mary's dad. That wasn't easy towards the end. And when you're in the midst of that pain, it doesn't, it's like, God, why are you doing this? I am sure that you probably at some point said, God, why? Uh, someone in the family did, maybe not Mary's. Uh, but but you, you're like, what's your, what's your wisdom here? I don't understand this, God, right? And we all have our own situations where we're saying that. It, it's as varied as you are varied people here right? But Romans 8 tells you that God, the one who died for you on the cross, if he's willing to sacrifice his own life in order for your salvation, then you can trust that whatever's going on in the present 
your present circumstances is not because he's condemning you or because it's evil, you know, he's doing some evil. He actually is doing something for your good. And we won't be able to see that completely until we get to the other side, how that's worked out. So that's, I think that's one half of the equation. You have to help people to understand. And, and I don't think once you, just saying it, just saying the doctrine doesn't make it a reality in your life. I think each one of us has to wrestle. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier of, of like, I want my situation changed, but I can't change my situation, and I'm wrestling, 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 and then at some point in your heart, you just say, God, but you're good, and I release that to you, okay? But the other side of the equation, there has to be, and I'll say it provocatively, there has to be one selfish being in the universe. Think about that. Okay, so if, if I say, I don't want you to give glory to me, who do I say I got to give glory to? The Lord. Okay, so who's he going to give glory to? What if he were to give glory to someone else? <laughs> What's, they'd be God. So it, there, has, there has to be someone at the top. We should just be thankful that the one at the top of whom all things are in and through and to, right? Everything goes to him. We should be thankful that he is not a selfish, uh, corrupt, wicked being. But the being that would actually die on the cross to bring you into his glory and allow you to share in his glory. He could have just said, I'm the most glorious being. You guys are scum cases. Stay down there. No, he says, I'm going to take Allison, she's here today, and she's just this, you know, one of billions of people in all history creation, and she's imperfect, and she doesn't, and I'm going to let her come in and share in my glory. That's the kind of God we serve. He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, Allison, you're going to do everything I tell you to do, and stay down there as low as you can be. You know, he doesn't do that. He brings us up to be his bride. So... My, my thinking is there has to be someone who's at the top. There has to be someone of whom all glory goes to. And we just should be thankful that we have a God who actually is a servant. He flips, he flips lordship on its head because he's actually willing to become the lowest of the low in order to redeem us. Is that helping your question or not? That's true. Mm. Yes, right. That's very good, Mark. Well said. Okay. Okay. Um, let's read uh, 25 to 28. Um, where's our mic? Anybody over there want to read? Or you just raise your hand and, okay. You going to read it for us in Spanish, Christian? 
Okay, so, okay, what you have to understand here, uh, virgins slash betrothed, okay, that's, that's the young maidens, and he's talking about a present crisis. So instead of like the now and the not yet, he's, he's focusing on the now, and, and even though that the Corinthians are not in terrible shape right now, they, they really believe that there's a crisis happening. It's like uh, you might feel uh, right before the Civil War, or right before World War II, or, you know, just situate. There's like this present crisis that's going to happen. Uh, and Paul here says that he doesn't have any clear command, right? He, and, and so, in a sense, Paul's being forced to give his counsel, but he's not really, uh, he thinks it's good counsel, but... It, it's it's not like thus saith the Lord on this, right? It's it's his advice. Um, someone say, you think it's a good thing for me to buy this house? And they give some counsel and well, look at the situation. Maybe the market's not that good, and you're you're giving counsel. You know, maybe which job should I take? Uh, I remember my son for a while was debating whether he should go directly into the ministry or if he should go into a uh, the current field he's in right now, and he was asking us for counsel. And you know, it's always hard when somebody asks you for counsel like that. You're just like, I, I don't know, I don't know exactly what God wants for you, you know. But you try, you know. Um, so here it is. Uh, and so here he says, dealing with betrothed people, and in that day, uh, a betrothed person, you have this contract usually a contract of parents uh, to be married. It's not Romeo and Juliet necessarily. It's just, you know, the parents saying there's this contract for them to get married. And the, the, the idea is, um, what do you do with this contract? And Paul says it's, it's actually good to not fulfill the contract. It's kind of what he's saying there. What do you think dictates this? What is it that, that, why does he give this particular counsel? Yeah. Yeah. There's, right now, things are really going to be hard. And trying to take care of a, a wife and family, because usually with 
marriage comes children, and it's, he doesn't really mention children here, but I, I think that's all in this, like, you're going to be taking care of a family in the midst of a war zone or this whatever crisis this is. But because he's so, he's already said previously that like, like the, the, the urges to marry can be so strong, get married. So he's like, I'm not binding you. If you want to get married, get married. And how many stories, I'm sure you know, a lot of movies and love stories are people like, Getting married right before they go off to war and the drama and the tragedy of all that. But, I mean, it's, there's a lot of romance in that. So, but, so Paul's not, he doesn't say, look, it's, if you get married, that's sinful. I mean, he wouldn't say that. Uh, it's just these are very, very difficult circumstances. Uh, then he goes on. Let's read 29 through 31. There you go, Junior. Very good. So then he's talking about this present crisis, but remember in the larger context of him thinking, he's really talking about the now and the next. And his view is, in this line, if this is the next, Jesus has risen from the dead. They think that Jesus rose from the dead really close to the next world. He's like, this world is almost over. This is why in, throughout the New Testament, when you see things like these are the last days, these are the final hours. From the time that Jesus rose from the dead, the New Testament apostles thought that this was it. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, this judgment and resurrection and all this coming of the Lord and the coming of his kingdom was one event. It was like squished together. Now we know that they have been separated for the salvation of the church. That's the reason why they've been separated. The reason why the Lord is slow in tarrying coming back is because he wants to save people. And really, there's probably been more people saved in the 20th century than all the previous generations before. So just think about that for a minute. If he had come back in the first century, there would be a lot smaller population in Gloria. Um, so anyway, but they thought it was really close. And Paul's actually moving from this present crisis into, yeah, this is, we expect him coming back any day. And, and so he says, those who have wives live as though they had none. He's not saying, remember, he's already said, this is like a, a, a saying, a poem or whatever he's quoting. But he, he's not saying, oh yeah, just you know, live separate, because he's already said previously in the chapter that you need to fulfill your sexual obligations to your spouses and love one another. That's, that's all part of this, but he's just trying to explain that this already nec next is a real reality that's happening. We have lived 2,000 years later. We almost look at that and like, yeah, Paul was just wrong. <laughs> What's up? What was he doing? But the truth of the matter is, from that first generation up until today, Christ could come at any moment. 
There's nothing holding him back from coming at this very moment. Only the Father's will. That's it. We don't know how many elect are going to be saved. We don't know when's the last one's going to be saved. He can come back at any moment. So you have to believe that, that the return of Christ in the word that we use is imminent. You don't, you don't say, oh, well, this and this and this has to happen, and then when that happens, then Christ can come back. If you say that, Christ's return is no longer imminent. If you, you either believe he can come back at this moment, or you think there's things that have to happen before he can come back. Do you understand the difference between those? We believe it's imminent. And Paul's preaching even here that the time is very short. And, and we, he's true. There's nothing, there's, think of it this way, there's no other redemptive event that has to occur for Jesus to return. We don't need to see the Messiah come. We don't need to see him set up a, a temple in Jerusalem. We don't need it. None of these things have to happen. It's just he can come back. Bam. That's the imminent. Like a thief in the night. That's right. And only God knows that. Yep. And so these, these statements are taken, should be taken in my mind as, as we should live in this world loosely. Maybe you have a lot of possessions in this life. Fine. But just know that any second they can be gone. <laughs> Maybe you don't have many possessions in this life. Fine. Try to get a better job and get possessions. But either having possessions, not having possessions, good marriage, bad marriage, slavery, not slavery... Ultimately, what matters is just living before God wherever you are. That's what matters. Because this world is passing away. Now, I have to tell you this. Just knowing this does not automatically break my addiction to this world. I'm still fighting against it. But that's, it helps, <laughs> right? I mean, it helps you to let go of this world. <clears throat> Questions or comments on that? Yeah. <laughs> you have a personal a personal eschatology as well, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And I, I really believe that you know Jesus could come back today or it could be another thousand years. We don't know. So, contrary to the events that are happening in Jerusalem right now, it could still take another thousand years. Um, 
<laughs> okay, uh, 30 through thir- 32 through 34. Thank you. Um, I think this is a passage that's often very uh, misunderstood. Um, the, The truth of the matter is that if you're not married, then it is possible to have your focus be more exclusive on the Lord. It's possible to do that. Now, just because it's possible to do that, you have to take, go back and say, remember, he said that the, the people who are burning with, with passion to be married, and I don't think that's just sexual passion, I think it's just yearning to be married. They're not just, oh, I'm just living in bliss, you know, before the Lord, and I, you know, He's already said that there are only some people have the gift of celibacy. Not everybody has the gift of celibacy. So you you can't take these verses and just pull them out and just say, yeah, no anxiety as a single person, but as a married person, you got tons of anxiety. It's it's more confusing than that, right? Um, And it's more detailed than that. Uh, But it is true that as a married person, your, your um, obedience to God is so closely joined to your covenant duty to love your spouse that you really can't do one without doing the other. I think that's what he's getting at. So um, in a marriage relationship, you can't say, oh, I'm going to love God, but I'm just going to hate my spouse. You can't do that. It's like they're joined. Remember, God is the one who joins two people together and gives them a portion of his spirit in their union. There's this union between the husband and wife that are there that you really are obligated to think about your spouse as your own body. And so when they're hurting, you're hurting. When they're dealing with anxiety, you're dealing with anxiety. It's like there's this, this connection. Now, it's not so closely connected that if they're an unbeliever, or they can't, you can't let them go. So this is, again, Paul's trying to work through these things, but they're, they're tensions, right? It's not just one or the other on this. So, uh, And he's basically saying that in this situation, in this present crisis, that it will be harder for you. It will be harder. Um, under, think about this. This is... Uh, these are the kind of things that I like. I, I want to get rid of the people debating and all that kind of stuff and just get into, isn't it wonderful that in this passage, Paul doesn't tell the single person or the married person, you shouldn't be worrying anyway. Like a pat answer. Well, what are you worrying for anyhow? 
God tells you to quit worrying. He actually is very, he's like a great pastor, compassionate. He's like, man, this is, you're going to have extra worries. And he's dealing with that. And he's like, okay, that, I mean, I want you to be free from that. But I understand not everybody can be free from that. And I understand your own heart yearnings. And I understand, he's, he's just like wrestling as a pastor. And so rather than thinking of Paul as this harsh man that's just saying this, 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 he's, he's waffling back and forth trying to understand how to love people in the present with helping them to think about the next day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, um, maybe I'll go back to the slave issue again. So, you know, slaves got married, had kids. You know, uh, they, they did that. And, and Paul would say, yeah, you, you have a right to do that. It's built into you to yearn to want to have a family. What happened to many of those families? Split up. Torn. Kids sent one way, one wife here, father there. That, now, so, so you, that's increasing your anxiety. So yes, in your situation where you, Benji and you go through crisis together and you love each other, maybe Robin and I trying to take care of Jenny together, it, it, what you just said makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in every situation. And Paul's just trying to, like again, he's not trying to blanket this so that this is just a blanket principle, this is always the case. No, some cases it probably is more difficult to be single than to be married. He's not denying that. So, But he is telling the married couple that, you could have some serious heartache here. It is well with my soul. You know, when he loses all of his children, you know. Uh, being married creates love, and it creates bonds, and it creates sadness. And uh, he's just saying those are issues that they're dealing with. Remember, he's been beaten. He's been tortured. He's been thrown in prison. <laughs> stoned. I mean, it's like... He, he knows, he's not just talking about little uh, life situations he's dealing with. All right, let me try to finish this real quick then so we can be done with this chapter. Um, maybe. Eh, maybe I shouldn't. Better, better not. This is, <laughs> I have written in my notes, 35 to 38. This is a tough passage, no matter how you slice it. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to end with this. We'll start it next week with that. <laughs> So next week, we'll finish that up and go into chapter 8. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, thank you that you do understand us. Thank you that you are not just sitting up there in an unfeeling way, just kind of pulling strings, telling us what to do and not to do, but you do love us. And Lord, forgive me for, for doubting your love. Forgive me for for even uh, doubting your goodness towards me. Um, maybe one of my greatest sins is when I do that internally. Um, you are faithful. You are good. You have shed your blood so that I could be free uh, from my sin. I pray for your people today. I pray that as they enter into worship today that they might feel the, the, the beauty of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in them. And among us, and will speak through Danny, and 
I, I just, this is a precious thing. And we belong to the next world, even though we are still living in this world. And give us grace, Lord, every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.